0: Hello, Dear Prudence listeners. I want you to know that I, Dear Prudence, Danny M. Lavery, will be answering questions at a live Dear Prudence episode in Brooklyn on April 23rd at 7.30 p.m. Go to slate.com forward slash live and get your tickets now. And then I'll see you at the Bell House in Brooklyn, and we'll all be in this together.
1: Dear Prudence.
0: Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence, Dear Prudence.
1: Dear pretty, do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Hello, welcome to another mini episode of Dear Prudence. I'm your host, Danny M Lavery, and this show is for you, our plus subscribers. Our guest this week is Farron Krenzel, the editorial director of the Newsette and editor-at-large for L.com. She lives in New York City with her life partner, a vintage leopard print coat from Paris. And now, here's our first letter. So our next uh, our next question is is uh, also, like, should I stay or should I go? We have
1: a lot of those We the do. Seat. We
0: often do. Yeah. And uh, it's your turn, if you don't mind reading this letter. It's my
1: turn. Lucky you. They're already trusting me. Be mm-hmm. careful. All right. Subject is, with a whimper. Dear Prudence, should I pull the plug on a fading marriage? I realized this week that my 28-year-old marriage is pretty much over when my husband started giving me the silent treatment about a mistake I made, and I felt nothing. 25 years ago, I would have pestered him to talk about it until he erupted into angry shouting, at which point I would have cried, and then all would be forgiven. 15 years ago, I would have fixed his favorite dinner and pretended nothing was wrong until the kids were in bed and then used marriage counselor-approved i statements to help us work through the issue this time i just ignored him until he got over it and i hardly noticed the difference in the quality of my days with the kids in college there was no awkward dinner i just fixed my own meal and let him figure out how to feed himself since he was avoiding me i was able to watch whatever i wanted on netflix and i didn't have to listen to him complain about the latest problems at work i know i would be happier just living alone but frankly, the financial and emotional costs of a divorce don't seem worth it. It would also, I'm sure, be a shock to our children, since for the most part, my husband and I get along fine. Is it okay for me to continue to just treat him like an occasionally annoying roommate that I have to put up with? I'm a little worried that one day I'll snap, walk out the front door, and join the first commune I find or something. Is there a middle path I'm not seeing? Well, maybe. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of hard to to think about, is there a middle
0: path? After kind of realizing my 28-year marriage, <laughs> we've never really found a way to communicate or fight well.
1: I want to say something mm-hmm. as someone who has not been in a 28-year-old marriage, which is that there is certainly a middle path between being all alone and being married to someone you don't like. Mm -hmm. Um, And that involves other family, other friends, new people that you might be interested in in a romantic or sexual sense, experiences and new things to learn. There's a whole lot in between. I am all alone. I have nothing to show for it. My children hate me. And I have a husband that I don't want to talk to, but everything is fine. You know, I can't speak to your financial situation. Right. Um, That's... On you, I can speak to the fact that you. I don't want to say you don't owe your children anything because, of course, you're concerned about their emotional well being, but they're in college. It's actually quite common for parents to split up when their kids are in college or right after because they don't have that daily structure and that daily mandate of caring for more people under their roof. Um, and although, of course, it will be hard for them because it's a huge change, it impacts their family structure, unless there's something you're not telling us, they're they're going to be okay. And you can't make your decision based on what young adults who live outside the home think about your relationship with your husband. I think that's
0: a really good point. I think, too, when it comes to assessing the financial cost of a divorce, that's absolutely real. It's mm-hmm. also true that Largely speaking, divorce financially uh, affects women much more than men and and not in a good way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that one thing that will help you there is getting really specific about what would actually happen, by which I mean like having a consultation with a divorce lawyer. Right. Those are usually free or or relatively inexpensive, and you can— Learn a little bit more about what the laws in your state might be. Um, Talk to a financial planner. Like, just not because you're going to make a decision the next day. You also don't have to tell your husband that you are exploring those options. But just to get a sense of, okay, how much money would I actually need to leave my husband and feel – Like I at least knew where I was going to be able to live and how I would pay my bills for six months.
1: Yeah. And to jump on that, the thing is when you're thinking about something in your head and it's just between you and your email address and dear prudence, that's one thing. But when you hear yourself talking about it out loud to someone, especially an expert who's going to talk back to you about the realities of it – you will feel some sort of way, and that will give you some indication, welcome or not, about what your gut is telling you. Here's something else I'm going to say, speaking of your gut. You say that it's fine, and I I want to take people at their word, but I'm going to tell you that if you've been in a marriage for 28 years where a man gives you the silent treatment because you make a mistake, and then you have to burst into tears or cook for him— mm-hmm. Before you're back to quote-unquote normal, that is not fine. And if that's your version of fine, I want something different for you because you don't deserve to be partnered with somebody who doesn't take your feelings seriously and who also doesn't forgive you for forgetting to lock the bathroom door. It's not okay. Right, right, and and I think. If
0: you at least spend a little time talking with one or two professionals who will treat those conversations confidentially um, and and do a little like, you know, back of an envelope sketching about what a potential financial plan might be to make that possible, if not tomorrow, in a year, in two years, in three you may also start to find that imagining it makes it feel more possible. Absolutely. Um, And you don't have to. You may have that that consultation. You may talk to a financial planner. You may set aside a little money, and you may decide in six months, eight months, whatever, I'm not ready to go today. You do not have to. Right. Um, But I think sometimes, especially when you've been saying, this is okay, this is sustainable, I can find a way to make this work for 28 years— it's really easy to say it's fine, and, and part of it is because, like, you can imagine all the downsides of leaving, and you can't yet imagine the loveliness of, like, man, if I were in a place where I could come home at the end of the day and there was no one there sulking yep. um, or manipulating me or making me feel like I had to create, like, a perfect homemade meal in order to earn my keep or or – merit talking to, the relief and the peace that you might feel from not having to pretend your marriage would be fine, um, that's a real benefit that is worth imagining.
1: Yeah. And one more thing I'm going to jump in on is you do mention that you two had been to couples counseling, which means that you do not, at least I'm going to assume that you don't have an aversion to speaking to somebody about relationships or about your own mental health. I don't think it would be a terrible move for you to privately make an appointment with a counselor or a therapist that you trust, not a couples counselor, mm-hmm. just someone who's looking out for you. Because I know we are not completely in the clear on using the word performative, but I do know that sometimes <laughs> when you go to counseling with somebody else, there is a bit of a performance aspect there where you kind of feel like you're on like a, um, you know, like a state volleyball scrimmage, and you're just trying to show them that you can pass the ball back Mm -hmm. and forth, even though you (laughs) can't.
0: Right. And if you went to marriage counselor with what sounds like marriage counseling, sorry, with a partner who is not necessarily bringing the same attention, interest, enthusiasm, effort to it, you know, marriage counseling is kind of only as useful uh, as the least committed person
1: that's totally true you are the weakest link romantic edition yeah Yeah. so
0: um (laughs) uh, there's also a limit to how much marriage counseling can help if one person is just sort of like i'm gonna keep doing what i'm doing totally
1: so So, all of
0: this is to say you may decide that you cannot afford to leave anytime soon but having a plan for what leaving could potentially look like a couple of years down the road might i think make the present more bearable for you um, that said if you hear all this and you're just like no I, I I'm not going to do that that's fine you're allowed to make that choice um yes you are absolutely allowed to treat him like an annoying roommate you absolutely have that right um frankly I think even if you do decide to leave in the meantime treating him like an annoying roommate please is treat
1: a, him like an annoying roommate is a great way to go absolutely
0: um do not expend inordinate amounts of emotional energy and like physical uh Effort, energy, work around the house. No and to more homemade
1: meals. Hands. No.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. You're if he done. wants to sulk, and you're just like, great, I'm gonna go watch Netflix. Please do. But I, the, my like last thought here is like, I'm a little worried that one day I'll snap, walk out, and join a commune. Boy, if that's your worst case scenario, like, <laughs> obviously, I realize plenty of communes can be like cults, cults, and that wouldn't be good for you. But you know, if the worst thing you can imagine is like someday I leave my husband and look into like collective living you know, there's some cool communes out there.
1: Yeah, That's not a bad idea. It's not all Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You can even keep your shoes on in a lot of the communes. Yeah,
0: and I think especially <laughs> what, what part of you might be longing for in that vision is this idea of, I don't want to just, like, go and and be, like, a all alone, fending for myself. I want to have a vision of leaving and and being part of a community. And I don't know if you have lots of friends and family members that you can confide in, that you trust. If you want to look for maybe support groups in your area for women who are struggling in their marriages, or um, if you want to try to seek out meaningful volunteer work or yeah. meaningful community groups, whether you're religious or not, whatever. Yeah. Or seek out
1: those connections. Take a class, you know, go go to painting twice a week, go to wine tasting, find people that are doing what you want to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you decide not to leave your husband,
0: investing your emotional energy in groups of people where you feel less alone and more connected and more tapped in, I, I think is a really good thing. And, you know, maybe you'll meet somebody super rich who loves you and then you can just uh, bail. Amen. That was mostly a joke. Amen. I I, I also want to encourage like (laughs) financial independence. Um, But uh, yeah, I think you you have the right to explore a lot of options. And in the meantime, to stop bending over backwards to try to get your husband to meet you halfway. Absolutely. You can just be like, oh, he's in a shitty mood tonight. I'm going to watch a movie. Peace out. And I'm going to say one more
1: thing to you, if that's okay. Please. I know right now, Letter Writer, that you sound a bit or you feel a bit trapped. But I have to tell you- I'm really excited for you because realizing that something is broken and that you have some options to fix it, both small and big, is the first step towards building a better life for yourself. And you're going to do it, whatever you decide to do. So I'm thrilled for you. Good luck. You're going to be great. Good luck. Yeah. So this next
0: one, is it's it's at (laughs) maximum intensity um which is a lot but i I think there's a lot of questions worth thinking through and considering here so um I'm, I'm, i'm intrigued um the subject is ethics of adoption dear prudence my partner and i have decided to begin the process of adopting an older child we've thought long and hard about this taking nearly two years to educate ourselves move to a good and diverse school district and get our finances in order When we recently told our families, they greeted this news with happiness and anticipation, all except my younger sister. At our last get-together, Rebecca pulled me aside to express her concerns, namely that we, as a white couple, would be tearing apart families of color by adopting. She finds adoption to be, quote, abhorrent and inhumane. We explained that we were undertaking this process with as much sensitivity and thoughtfulness as possible, but the demographics of adoptable children in our state swing heavily towards children of color. We also talked about our plans for ensuring that we would continue to learn about our child's history and their community. My sister told us that if we really cared about the community the child came from, we'd give money to have someone else from that background care for the child, anyone instead of us. Rebecca said that until we gave up the idea of adopting and apologized for not recognizing our privilege, she would not speak to us. Her questioning has rattled both my partner and me. Is my sister right? Should we not consider adoption because we are white? So in some ways, this was framed like, I don't want to say like a troll, but like in the most intense and like, bad faith representation of a particular set of difficult and important questions and objections to the way adoption is often practiced here in the states um, that said i i got the feeling from this that this was really going on um, i didn't my, my my read on this was not like i think that this is a fake right but i'll just say like these questions are all important to consider and to think about the threat that Rebecca has made, which is, I won't talk to you unless you do the following, is something you can let go of. Right. Like, these are questions worth thinking about and considering. Uh, don't do or not do something in order to get Rebecca to talk to you, I, I think would be my first piece of advice.
1: Yeah. In I- fact, maybe Rebecca doesn't need to be talking to you because that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I-,
0: I think for her
1: to go to
0: that immediately— is, is if nothing else, a sign that she's not really prepared to have a lot of conversations with you about this.
1: Yeah. If this were a Lifetime movie, it would be called What's Up with Rebecca? Uh, yeah, yeah. So
0: so in terms of when, when you think about, like, the history of, like, forced adoption and, like, children, boarding school children. impressment yeah. in, with Native Americans in this country, um, historical abuses in the foster care system with families of color, particularly black families, like, there's absolute truth to what Rebecca is saying in terms of, like— what families get children taken away? Yeah, how race uh, affects that, how money affects that, how not having money is is often something that families are penalized for. Um, I remember the story of a couple of years ago. There was that mother who was um, had like left her kid in a park for a little while to go to a job interview at McDonald's. Yes, free
1: range children, and how they called the police even though the kid was like ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's
0: absolutely ways in which like people who are unable to make a living are put in a position of
1: having to make impossible decisions. Absolutely, and then punished. Um, Especially when mass incarceration comes into play, which is a whole other way that racism and oppression, you know, feeds a system that's already broken. Right. So that's all real and true. Right.
0: Um, one thing that you might find useful uh, is is to read books or articles or anything written by adult adoptees. Transracial adoptees, um, Who were adopted into white families, um, but are themselves people of color.
1: Doesn't it sound like they're already doing that? I mean, when they said they moved somewhere where the school system would better represent the kind of kid that they were going to get? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, it could have been just like they move. I
0: I don't know if it was like literally we're in a great area and we're going to move across the state in order to be in this particular demographic.
1: To me, it sounded like they were listening to another great slate podcast, Care and Feeding, where they often talk about making sure, you know, it's more important to make sure that your children are around like a great diverse group of kids Mm -hmm. than it is to be in, quote unquote, the prize school district. And to me, it sounded like they were listening to that and made a conscious choice. Yeah, And I think it's also possible to do more.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I also just think like I think sometimes there's this idea of like, OK, maybe the system is fundamentally broken, but we can ethically participate in the system if we just educate ourselves enough? And I understand, if not the way Rebecca has handled it, somebody else saying, maybe you can educate yourself all day long and the system is still irreparably broken. And what do you do with that? I I, I, I am not going to make a call here about whether or not you should consider yourselves potential adoptive parents. That feels like kind of above my pay grade, frankly. Like, to, And also just because I don't think They're likely to say, like, well, we just won't adopt kids because you told us not to.
1: Right. Can can I say something that is probably above my—definitely above my pay grade, but I feel so strongly in it because I I am— a translucently white woman, but I am at the age where I've started thinking about what family means to me, and I have started deeply researching adoption and foster care um, and what that might look like for me. Mm -hmm. And so I've thought about these questions, too, not nearly the extent that it sounds like the letter writer has had, but I have also had conversations, not with family, but with friends who have brought up some aspect of that. Um, sometimes forcefully, sometimes just with curiosity. And to me, if there is a child who is living in a group home Mm -hmm. or a foster system where there is no adoption possible and they need a place where they sleep every night, where they have someone helping them with their homework, where they have someone talking to them about college, Mm -hmm. where they have someone hosting playdates – I understand that the system is broken and the system steals children. Hmm. We have an entire line of stolen children on our country's border right now. That is not a question. The question is, what do we do about the kids who are already caught up in this system and who are living somewhere unsafe and Potentially keeping them unwell emotionally. And I think it's also
0: true that there are kids who are genuinely in situations where there is not a person in their family of origin who can care for them. Totally. Um, And it's also true that not every child in the system is a non-white child. And so there would also be that question of, like, it's still an imperfect situation for the white kids who get caught up in it. And, like, that's still not, um, like, just because you then remove the racial element doesn't suddenly make it an easy Easy. or a, a, a complex, free situation. So all of which is to say, um, I, I think it can be helpful to know you don't have to match Rebecca's intensity. You can let her know that, like, y- you are thinking and talking about these particular things with different people in your life you've thought about. know there are also... Like, possibilities for open adoptions. Like, we're no longer living in a day and age where you, like, a pick up a baby right. and then you never, ever talk to them about their families of origin ever, ever again. Right. Um, it's very possible that any particular family situation you find yourselves in, you will have contact with your child's family of origin. And there can be a possibility for relationship there and for connection there. Um, that's a real possibility. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean everything's going to be, like easy and just, like, a wonderful Brady Bunch style, like...
1: No, but I'll tell you a secret that isn't a secret because we were all children once. Nobody, no family, is easy and perfect in Brady Bunch. That's why they were on television and we lived real lives. Um, You know, whether they come out of your body or out of a system that needs a lot of help, these children are going to be difficult because that's what children are. It's their job. Yeah. (laughs) I think the last thing that I would
0: urge the letter writer to keep in mind before they make whatever decisions that they decide to make. And I, I think it would just be this. Um, if you want to prepare to become a parent, uh, especially if you want to prepare to adopt a child, um, I, I think you need to go into it with the knowledge that we might have the best of intentions and still do something wrong. It may be possible that 15, 20, 25, 30 years from now, our kid comes to us and says, I wish you hadn't adopted me. That may not happen either, but like. It is important, I think, to think about these questions now. Okay. Um, yeah. Because um, otherwise, my fear is that you will produce within your family a sort of desperation for the child to say, "No, you did the right thing." I love you. I love you. I love. I love you. you. I'm so glad yeah. everything worked out great. To perform a particular type of, don't worry, you did good.
1: Yeah, you're right. You would create that anxiety, and I'll, you know. I am from a great biological family, and I still have had many, many moments in my life where I've said, you weren't ready to have a kid. Why did you have me? <laughs> right, yeah. You know, so that's that's great advice. How would you get so good at this? Mm,
0: I mean— <laughs> uh... I, we don't know that I'm good at this. We don't know what they're going to do. Let's, let's check back in with this one 25 years from now, and then we can it's gonna see. It's going
1: to be like that 7-Up documentary. Uh, oh, my gosh. I love that. Yeah. I love that. We just follow people you've counseled every seven years, and we'll see how it goes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, but, uh, you know, I, I want to both acknowledge the ways in which you have been thoughtful and worked hard to think carefully about this and to say that's a good thing. And there's also a limit to how much good individual, good intentions and education can do in a broken system that doesn't mean you're personally responsible for the broken system but it also doesn't mean that you can say we're kind of opting out of it or sidestepping the hard parts about it either
1: that's a Um, great way of putting it it's only
0: part of um, what we can do and so to maybe think about what are other ways that we can take action in our communities um, to improve not the systems because again a lot of these systems should simply be dismantled but to help families in crisis that are caught up in the systems absolutely